Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 29 of the Capital Spotlight podcast. Your host, Craig McGrother, the Director of Business Development here with Lone Star Capital. Alongside, as always, the man, the myth, the legend, the co-principal and founder of Lone Star Capital, two-time author of over 20,000 books sold, Rob Beardsley. How are you today? I'm doing great. We just had pizza day in the office, so I've got pizza all over my face and I'm going to fall asleep, but it's all good. Feeling good. Exactly. Nothing like a light piece of a thick church street pizza, right? Yeah. Yeah, To go. Yep. Yeah, to go carbicide on everyone and uh, to be have to be uh, sideways for a nap. But hey, we got a jam-packed day today because not only do we have this incredible show we're going to deliver to you, but we also have a special webinar for Aspire. Um, that deal is an incredible deal. If you're a capital raiser, if you're an investor looking to partner with us and learn more about that deal as it's a 506C so we can widely talk about it, please let me know. Re- reach out to me at craig at lscre.com. Additionally, some housekeeping items. Uh, This is January 3rd recording. This will be out on January 8th. We'll be in Texas next week. So we're going to Houston and San Antonio. So maybe you might be catching us a little bit late here. uh, But reach out to me if you'd like to potentially meet up in Houston or in San Antonio. We'll be in Houston January 8th and 9th. And then the night of the 9th, we're driving to San Antonio. We'll be in San Antonio looking at uh, Spire. Uh, and then they before at a new acquisition in Houston, but we'll be in San Antonio on January 10th and 11th, leaving midday there. So maybe meet up with us uh, there. Someone else, actually several people have reached out to me with regards to meeting up uh, and coordinating from listening to our show, which is awesome. We're also going to be having a mixer event in Newport Beach, California. Uh, so that will be coming up. When do you have the date on February on 1st? February 1st, right after NMHC. Yes. Speaking of which, before uh, you know the Newport event is NMHC. So if you are, in fact, going to be attending National Multifamily Housing Conference in San Diego, California, uh, let me know. I'm actually very excited for NMHC this year, juxtaposed to last year. Was not a big fan of it, but I think being outside of Vegas will make it more uh, appealing. Also, I feel like we're a little bit more set up with regards to meetings and whatnot, and hopefully it'll be easier to navigate walking through um, and finding where everyone's going to be located. So I'm looking to hopefully have a more smooth experience there. Uh, we also have Race Fest in Phoenix coming up. Uh, that is January 20 or February 22nd to 24th. So if you are a capital raising partner, going to be in Phoenix, Arizona a little bit before. I know you mentioned that you'll be there uh, right after your birthday, I imagine, as your birthday is February 15th. Uh, you'll be out there um, hanging out and uh, we'll be taking folks like Gib uh, to Buck and Riders. So if you want to get a nice dinner, if you're a capital partner uh, that's looking to raise and partner with us, you know where to find us. Reach out to me at Craig at LSCRE.com. Uh, any other housekeeping items that I may or may not be missing? Yeah. I mean, what an amazing way to start off the year. We got all these great events planned, some that we're hosting, some that we're attending. And also one thing you didn't mention is you'll be attending IMN's Laguna event, which is their flagship private capital event. So I'm really excited for you to go to that. That's the first time that anyone from Lone Star will have attended that event. So that's going to be a great experience, I think. I think there's a lot of uh, big, big players that are going to be there. Yeah, and it's funny. I think you and I have kind of talked about this, but we've got a very nice staple of capital partners that we're working with right now. And our goal is actually not to go super wide anymore as much per se, but instead of going wide, going very deep. So going deep in regards to the connections that we have and really kind of doubling down and focusing on those people as opposed to, you know, meeting someone, maybe sending them deals one off and now you're just another person sending them deals. So to really uh, build legitimate 
uh, relationships is kind of what we're seeking to do here in the new year. Um, so we're trying to travel, we're trying to get everyone's location down to make sure we could send out emails to take people out to dinner. You know, 2024 is the year of intentionality. So we really want to be intentional with our uh, travel, with our workflow and making sure that we are, you know, really developing and harvesting relationships that last a while. On to the show topics, uh, as we had a long-winded intro there. We're going to be talking about 2021 being a bad investment vintage. Uh, it's funny, all in, uh, Freeberg was talking about how 2021 for venture capital was a bad year. And similarly for multifamily, we'll get into the nuances as to why, but 2021 was not the best year for investments in that regard for, for multifamily. Um, how to get paid for your tax, CapEx. So where is the value um, to add for value add deals? Uh, the residential real estate structure, it seems as if there's a lot of misconceptions regarding that. So I would just like to spell that out uh, real quickly. And then also a mailbox uh, question that someone who listens to the show asked us. We'll get into that question after. And if you do have any questions you'd like to get answered on the show, please, of course, email me at craig at lsuri.com. And once more, if you're looking to partner with us, you're looking to raise equity, for some of our deals and learn more what a structure and a partnership would look like with Lone Star Capital, please reach out to me. We'd love to uh, kind of walk you through who we are, what we're doing, and uh, how you could participate in that if you uh, aren't aware of all those things. Amazing. Let's cool. do it. Yeah, let's get into it. Without further ado, 2021 being a bad investment vintage. Uh, so All In talked about this venture capital just not doing very well that year. And it's kind of funny. It ringed very true to what uh, kind of happened in 2021 with, you know, just the multifamily housing market, right? So effectively, you know, deals got, you know, the market got really hot, cap rates got very compressed, raising money was the easiest, but similarly, what happened? Uh, you know, a lot of those deals were on bridge and floating rate debt that have maturities in 2023. Um, so maybe you're in the extension year or going through the extension currently, maybe you had a three-year plan, whatever it may be, and you're extending right now and you're figuring out, hey, do I have to extend this? Do I need to capital call or do I need to sell it a loss? You know, where is deal truly valued at right now. So those who are kind of in those short-term, you know, debt cycle periods or floating rate debt, not fixed rate debt situations are really going to be struggling right now currently, right? So um, I thought it was interesting how Allen mentioned that it was a bad year for venture capital, but similarly, um, you know, that was likely when the market was hottest. It was not the best year for multifamily. So we'd love to have your insights and perspective on that matter. Yeah. So like you mentioned, David Friedberg on the All In podcast said they were they were doing their end of year recap and what was the biggest loser of 2023 and he said well 2021 investments were the biggest loser of 2023 and you know that that makes a lot of sense that's not a, i would say a very controversial opinion but he was specifically speaking on venture capital like you said and so that draws attention to the fact that risk assets which are stocks Bond. I mean, really, all assets are risk assets, right? Unless you're investing in something that is considered risk-free, which the only thing that's considered risk-free in finance is U.S. Treasury bonds, right? So the the important point is risk assets are all correlated because they're all connected to interest rates. So whether you're in the multifamily investment business, venture capital business, private equity, investing into stocks and bonds, you're interest rate sensitive. So you might think that you are really smart or that you have a unique strategy. But unfortunately, by and large, the majority of strategies and asset classes are just an interest rate play. They're just correlated to interest rates. And that doesn't necessarily mean, mean they're bad. It just means you have to be aware of it. And what, what that implies is that 
in in many cases, when you think you're diversified, you really aren't as diversified as you think, right? If you think that you uh, or if you own certain basket of stocks, and then you also own some real estate, and you also invested in venture capital, you might think, oh, well, I'm well diversified. I own all these different strategies and asset classes. But the reality is they all go up when interest rates go down, and they all go down when interest rates go up. So there's I'm not really, uh, I'm kind of rusty on some of these topics, but I used to read some really fascinating papers from this hedge fund. And I'm drawing a blank on the name of the hedge fund, but I'll definitely remember and we can revisit it and talk about it next podcast because I, I really nerded out on these papers. This guy wrote some really awesome papers and he talked about how, you know, as far as true exposures and asset classes, you basically have long rates and short rates. And then you can be long volatility and short volatility. And those are pretty much the only asset classes that exist, right? Because the, it's a it's a myth to think that real estate and stocks, all these different ways to invest are actually different, right? They're, they're all the same, right? You're either long rates or you're short rates. And when I say long, I mean you're basically betting on interest rates going down. Or if you're short rates, you're shorting them, which means you're uh, hoping that rates go up. And so... A lot of us in our portfolios are long rates. We have benefited over the last 40 years from a secular decline in interest rates. So pretty much everybody who's an investment professional today has only lived through one sort of in interest rate environment or economic regime, and that has been of declining rates. And so that means that historically speaking, if you have been on the if you've owned assets and you've been uh, along any sort of asset, you've seen appreciation, you've seen cap rate compression or in private equity or in venture capital, you've seen multiple expansion because in those businesses, companies are valued on a multiple of their income. So if you were able to buy a venture capital deal or a private equity deal, and you're able to not even necessarily grow the income of the business, you're not necessarily making the business a better business, you just benefited from the multiple of the income that values the property expanding, then you are making money and you thought you were a genius. And so this has happened since the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. And now we've seen it that breakdown. And we're at what some people argue is an inflection point. And this actually ties really well to some uh, commentary from Howard Marks from his memos. So you can tell because I'm bringing all this stuff up. I did quite a lot of reading over the Christmas break, because uh, I did go back and read uh, Howard Marks's most recent memos. And in his most recent one, which I'm a big fan of Howard Marks, he's the founder of Oak Tree Capital. They're a distressed debt investor to their core, but since they've grown and expanded, and then they got bought by um, Brookfield, which I'm staring out at Brookfield Place right now. So long story short, Howard Marks, who he's not a guy that puts all these big calls. He doesn't say, I predict the future or I'm, he doesn't put all these calls out there. He's always like, Hey, I don't know what the future has in store. We don't invest based on thinking that we know the future. We take what the defense gives us. Yeah. So he's not emotional and he's not hyperbolic with this decision. He's not irrational. It's very calculated, long-term thinking and Hey, stick to your fundamentals and your guns. Is that what you're kind of painting? That's exactly who he is, right? He's, he's funny guy, but he's not super loud, shouty. He's not a Peter Schiff guy who's like, hey, you need to buy gold because the world's collapsing, right? 
Or, or like Kramer on uh, CNBC, exactly. if you fade his picks, you'd actually be very, very successful. Exactly. So Howard Marks, right, he's not one to make these big, big comments. But in his last memo, he said that he thinks that we are at an inflection point where this last 40 year long trend of secular decline, secularly declining interest rates is over. And now we're moving into a different regime, which is more so not necessarily categorized by the opposite, which would be rising and rising and rising interest rates, but just that rates might be more neutral and flat. So you're not going to benefit from this big cap rate compression and just keep on getting wins and wins and wins. And so for him, and obviously this is convenient for him because they are historically a debt investor, so they make loans. So, so his argument was that for the next period of time, it's going to be a more beneficial strategy to actually be a lender rather than a borrower. Because in a period where you see declining rates, it's better to be a borrower because what you're likely to see is your asset to go up in value, the value of your debt eroded by inflation. And so it makes sense to be a borrower. However, if we're in a different environment, right, then it makes more sense to be a lender. Now, those are interesting points. And like I said, he's not one to make these big calls. But if you, what that also implies, though, is that inflation is not an issue. Because if you are a lender, you don't want inflation. Inflation is negative for a lender, much more so than it is for a borrower, right? Because with inflation, you can inflate the value of the debt that you borrowed down. So that is beneficial. So, I mean, there's always th these different ways to look at economics and strategies. And so while I find all that stuff to be interesting, and I think it's important to stay on top of economic theory and news and philosophy, I think the best thing you can do is stick to your strategy and stick to what you know. And over long, long periods of time, that will pay off and you'll be successful. So I'm not calling for us to dramatically shift our strategy, although we are always kind of shifting and finding the nuances in the market, which we'll talk about soon about value add strategies, right? But the important thing is to, like I said, stick to what you know and invest for the long term. You know, I look at, for example, one of my, uh, I, I don't want to say idols, what the better word, like role model is MG Properties. All yeah, right. maybe mentor or somebody you look from afar that maybe you don't know, but people you aspire to model your life and business after. I think yes. it'd be a good way to phrase it. That's exactly right. So MG Properties, right? Mark Lieberman started that firm, I believe in 1991 or 93 or something like that. So they're over 30 years in the business. And what do they do? They buy multifamily properties and that's all they do. And they've just slowly put one foot in front of the other, and they've just done tremendously well. Their track record is incredible. And that is inspiring to me. I don't want to recreate the wheel or jump from strategy to strategy and be an asset class tourist, right? We need to be specialists. We need to drive long-term success. So anyway, that was a, a very long-winded uh, way of kind of going on and on about uh, kind of a little economic uh, uh, theory update. Yeah, well, a couple of things there I want to unpack. So number one, obviously with lenders, as we know, the upside is very fixed and limited to a certain extent. Like, you know that, hey, you're going to make X percent on this deal. Hopefully it doesn't get foreclosed on and the deal, you know, exits at a very favorable market. So, you know, the, the deal is not trading below paper, right? Which we're seeing right now 
opt-in. But similarly, what you said about, um, you know, basically revenue multiples and whatnot, all in is kind of really talking about right now that businesses that are going to be doing well and going to be thriving in this environment coming up, we want cash flow positive to start, right? And are, you know, creating legitimate profit and revenue, right? So anyone can create revenue. I remember Greg Haig, um, who is huge in the Phoenix market for multifamily or single family home sales. He started 72 Sold, which is a big company that Keller Williams bought. But he said this when, you know, Open Door and Zillow and all these companies were buying homes. Listen, they're just creating revenue. Anyone can create revenue. I could spend a billion dollars and create revenue, but can anyone create profit is the real question. And that's what's really important right now. Similarly, as I tie that back to what we're doing, what are we looking for right now more than anything else? You know, we want to have a deal with a really good cap rate with obviously positive leverage. But what's that creating? That's creating cash flow. That's creating more cash on cash. So what we're looking for right now more than anything else is a really solid yield. So we have a preferred return of about seven or about eight or nine percent, depending upon your investment range that you're in. And we're getting deals right now with about an 8% cash on cash return, which is incredible because we basically hit our preferred return, which is cumulative compounding just on the cash flow alone. And then anything that we sell after the fact is just upside basically for us and our capital partners and whatnot, and obviously for said investor. Uh, but our point of emphasis and likewise the venture capital right now are correlated because we are in a higher interest rate environment looking for cash flow positive deals and good yield. So I thought that was something that, as you were mentioning all your points, brought me back to that thought right there that it's all about the yield right now. And for the first time, and why 2021 is bad is because what we had cap rates that were sub 5% debt around that number, or maybe worse, where uh, people did short rate, uh, short term debts, maybe increase the yields of the property, but you know, rents started softening, uh, bumps were not had, and the market they were going to exit in was less than favorable, which is a problem, obviously. Um, but right now, what we're looking to do is have, you know, higher cap rates, obviously, in the acquisition that create, you know, very positive cash on cash with some obviously enhancement plan uh, one way or another. Uh, so I thought that was just an interesting tie in together that you put and then it got my brain kind of sparked about what kind of we're doing from a strategy perspective, which is, of course, heavier emphasis on the cash on cash play and really solid and core markets where we know that, hey, when the market does turn around and when we there will be cap rate compression, these higher end quality deals that are 90s and that 2000s vintage assets will get to be the first if there's cap rate compression will come there. But if there's less cap rate compression, hey, that's why buying the deals are really important and buying drunk right now is not something that we want to do. Because if we have to hold a deal for maybe five to 10 years, we'd rather hold the deal that's, you know, 90s built, like Beckley Highland Emeritage or 2000s built that we just closed on or, you know, like Aspire that is an incredible cash on cash profile. I mean, over the whole period of Aspire, which we're looking to, you know, close on here soon uh, and raise equity for that we have a webinar on for today, that'll be probably about a nine to 10% cash on cash if we hold that, you know, years three, four and five, which is incredible. So those are the amenities and kind of the factors and the profiles of deals that we're looking for right now. Um, and it's just interesting, the mirror and matching that uh, we look at. And it's nice because those deals in 2021 with Treasury's low, um, you know, the yield is low, or maybe there's no, you know, cash on cash return at all. So, you know, I think, you know, a lot of capital raising partners I've spoke with and a lot of institutional people we've spoke on are really just looking at cash on cash because it's too speculative on the exit cap rate and what that will look like. And, you know, compression sounds nice. We all look for it. We all strive for it, but it's not a guarantee. That's more of just, you know, market dependent as to where your exit is, right? Yeah, it's actually really funny. So, the least knowable variable in your underwriting is the exit cap rate. It's and that's the, the most important factor, frankly, like, cause that yes. would decide where the property's value will actually be. Is that 
Like right. it's so funny when people look at these huge deals with with massive IRRs and equity multiples, they could have bogus numbers because if we want to put every single deal out of exit forecast, then every deal is going to be a three X equity multiple. You can put whatever you want in there, but that's not really you know something that is dependable uh, necessarily because you have no control of that. But what do you do have control of? Your debt and your cap rate and your cash on cash, right? And your, your value add enhancement plan. Much more so, yes. So. Yeah, it, it's a it's a tough thing to really hang your hat on, but see what happened in 2021. If we'll continue to pick on that year, is people got really aggressive, and so when times are aggressive, risk leaves the market, or more accurately, leaves the brains of people in the market. Right? People stop thinking about risk and they think about greed instead of fear. Right. Well, they so, get FOMO. It's herd mentality. It's a FOMO mentality where all my friends are investing. All these deals have done so well. You know, as Robert Kiyosaki says in Rich Dad Poor Dad, which I just re-listened to. You know, when the when the headline and people have made money is on the front page of the news, and you can get into is when you need to find a new investment, and the deal is too late because everyone else is there, and the hot money is going to be in, which will just wipe out gains. It's just the natural cycle of things. So right now, yes, right now is the time to invest, and is the time to get greedy. Right. Because right now is not the time when your Uber driver is giving you stock advice. <laughs> yeah. They're telling you to sell everything. They're chicken little, as the book would say. They're, they're the sky is falling. Nothing's going to work. Doom and gloom. And they're the people that will get wiped out instead of actually building legitimate wealth. Yes. Very true. So when risk isn't on top of people's minds, they're not so worried about that exit cap rate as guess, right? They're like, oh yeah, the exit cap, of course that will stay low. Of course we'll make a big return. No big deal. So the cash flow is not as important. See, but the funny thing is now, and you know this very well uh, over the last year, at least, frankly, the conversations we've been having with savvy investors and, and institutional capital, and they're saying, well, we have no idea where exit cap rates are going to be in three to five years. So we're going to use a very conservative number and what we we're need gonna, instead we're gonna beat up underwriting a ton. So we're yes. really, really going to handicap your underwriting. Absolutely. Yeah. And what we're going to look at more closely is cash on cash. And that's yeah. what we're going to rely on to drive our returns. And the funny and thing about that. Cost. Yeah. Yes. The funny thing about that is they didn't know what exit cap rates were going to be two years ago either. Right. Cap rates. Exit cap rates today are no less knowable than they were two years ago. It's just that people now are bringing risk back into their mind and now they're caring about it more. So it's not that we are in necessarily a more uncertain environment, right? If anything, we're in a bit more of a certain environment, right? Because I could agree more. Yeah. Like Chris Mendez said at our I was literally just I was gonna say that, but I'm so happy you beat yeah, me go, to it. You yes. go ahead. No, you, yeah. So essentially, Chris Mendez with Pearlmark, shout out Chris Mendez. I doubt you're listening to this, but you are. Hello, and would love to have you on the show and take you out to Carbone and Fort Charles. Whatever you like, we'll take you there. Um, so I hope you're doing great and happy new year to you. Uh, but he was saying at the incredible Lone Star Summit, which would be held uh, for the fourth edition, uh, September 16th in New York City, once more at the World Trade Center. So shout out to that event. If you're looking for a ticket, let us know. But Chris Mendez at our event last year on the equity panel said, what's crazy to me and what's riskier to me was when everyone was throwing money when the market was super hot in 2020 and 2021. I think it's way safer right now, considering where you know the market's at currently. And I thought that point was so true. And you know, I want to be very greedy right now. We've talked about this with investments and whatnot, but I want to be incredibly greedy right now and you know deploy as much equity and 
good deals as possible that have very you know reasonable uh, assumptions and projections. So let's talk about what makes a good deal because you mentioned earlier what we're focused on, which are deals with cash on cash, but that's not necessarily true for everyone. There's certainly people out there that are still focused on deals that are not cash on cash focused and they're looking at IRR more so. Yeah, well, and real quick too, before we get into that, I just want to think about this thought and be curious to know how you perceive this. And also, uh, I'd be very curious to know. So if you are listening to the show, we'd love to have your perspective. But I feel as if we're in the market right now where deals are going to do very well and we're going to exit well. But when we know the market's going to be really hot on the exits, that means we have to be very careful on the next acquisition because there's a very good chance that deal might be caught in the middle of the cycle, right? Where you know the valuations are changing. So what are we going to do? Um, and maybe this is something you don't have the answer for right now, but from a strategy perspective, if we do really well, we hit a you know 2.5 equity multiple on some of these deals coming up, which I think is very realistic. Are we going to kind of go more conservative when we 1031 exchange from deal A to deal B um, with longer term debt just to make sure that we can stand it and kind of, you know, pitch our investors a longer term mindset with regards to, you know, capital preservation and also, hey, we did really well here. Um, you know, cyclically speaking, if we did well here, there's a chance that we get burnt here on the next deal. So let's make sure that we preserve the capital and we are extremely conservative after we've been very greedy with regards to our impeccable returns there. How do we manage that? And how do we go from deal A to deal B and play the market timing game right? Because you're never going to time the market perfectly, but we can all put up strategies that will help best um, solidify uh capital preservation, right? So what do you think we're going to be doing when the market gets too hot and there's all these indicators of money coming in and flowing and, you know, our Uber drivers are giving us real estate investing advice? Yeah. So there's so many things to talk about here. Uh, this is a great topic. So one, one thing that comes to mind is the concept that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And yes. if you, if your sword is aggressively flipping deals, you're buying you're value adding and you're selling and you're relying on the continuation of the market such that you can exit quickly and at an attractive valuation, that's great. And that's a way to generate very high returns. And what the, that strategy is predicated on as well is flexible debt. And it doesn't necessarily have to be bridge debt, but it in a way almost has to be floating because if you're not floating, you're going to be locking yourself into prepayment penalties, which is going to hurt your ability to churn through deals in, in a two-year period, right? And that's flipping, 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 right? And in single family, when you hear of house flippers, right, they flip a house in six months to nine months. But in multifamily, flipping is more like 12 months, 24 months, even 30 months is still kind of like a flip. So yeah. so for multifamily- on the scale of, Yeah, depending on the scale of units you have, right? To, to your point. Yeah, and this this yeah, there's a lot of things at play, but you know, that, that for for big commercial assets that would still be considered a short-term investment and a flip. And so if you're living by that sword, you're going to most likely generate very high returns, but then what's going to happen is like you said, you're not going to be able to predict the top. So there's no way to stop that strategy from going over the edge and falling down when the market does turn because what's going to be ha what's going to happen is no matter how well you're doing while the cycle is going along you're flipping you're flipping you're flipping eventually you're going to get caught into that next flip and that next flip is just going to so happen to be when the market crashes as it always does and that's when you're going to see losses because it's very difficult to be positioned in such a way to avoid losses when you're 
busy flipping deals, right? You're living by the sword and you're dying by the sword. That doesn't mean that on average, if you add up all those good wins and then subtract out the losses when the market turns, you might still average out to a, a nice return. So I'm not saying it's a bad strategy, but you're going to have to live with the bigger ups and the bigger downs. I mean, there's a lot of people right now, though, that are having and or find themselves in deals where the, you know, they bought on no cash flow and they bought on a bridge cycle and or floating rate debt. And they're about to have all their equity be, you know, evaporated because too short of, you know, deal cycles. And I feel as if right now you can probably get away with, for I mean, for sure, floating rate debt bridge might be a little bit too soon, but maybe like a five-year floater term might be really nice because I do think either they'll stabilize or kind of trend down. That's what, you know, a lot of reasonable people are forecasting. So I understand that strategy, but I just would rather end up with, you know, a slightly more modest returns versus ever losing any equity. But maybe that's just with where I'm at, knowing that market beta and a force of pre appreciation value by plan over the course of a decade or two will just eventually and always ride up as opposed to getting too greedy and, you know, hitting a, you know, 40 IRR here, but then all of a sudden getting capital called or, you know, equity evaporation on the next opportunity. You know, it's all for nothing at that point, effectively, right? So the way I kind of think about that is just like anything else, slow and steady when the race. Now our returns are bigger than, you know, what, you know, the S&P 500 will be or what just the typical market appreciation will be due to the natures of the deals that we're buying. So we're sheltered and we'll have higher returns there. But I just think about the fact that I'd rather be safer on not this cycle per se and where our buyings will be in 2024, 2025, and 2026, but it's after that. It's 2027, 2028, and 2029, and 2030 that I want to be very careful on the structuring of the debt and equity as we, you know, handle what's going to come next after that. So to answer your question there, let's say right, right now we're definitely seeing a resetting of the cycle. And so it is very likely that the deals purchased in 2024 will do very well because they're going to experience the the rising tide of the resetting of the cycle and and getting going again. But then, like you said, if if we do really well and then we sell a deal and then we tend to do an exchange into the next one, is it reasonable for us to expect that that new deal that we buy is, is not going to, is it reasonable to expect that that's also going to be, you know, quote, early cycle and that we're gonna be able to ride it up again and then sell that in three to five years again higher and higher and higher right you have to be cognizant of the fact that you might be 1031 exchanging into what could be near to the top of the cycle and so going back to howard marks he talks about cycles a lot i mean he wrote a book called mastering the market cycle and which is funny coming from a guy who claims to not be able to predict the future and not look to predict the future and so his philosophy is Yes, you can kind of, you can't predict the future, but you can kind of figure out where you are today, right? You can generally decide, are we at the top of the market or are we at closer to the bottom? So that is relatively knowable. But what you don't know is time because you can be in the seventh inning, in the eighth inning and think, oh my gosh, this is late cycle. This is feeling very toppy. But guess what? You can hang out in the eighth inning for years like we did from 2016 all the way to 2020. Nice. And I then we thought, about... oh, this is going to be a crash. And then guess what? The Fed inflates. And then we go from 20 to 21 to 22. And then finally, we see the cycle reset, right? So you can't know exactly what year, what's going to happen, but you can roughly know where you are and position yourself accordingly. So like you said, right now is perhaps a time where you can actually lean in and take more risk because you think that 
beta will be higher. And so risk will be rewarded more greatly. But then let's say we sell a property in five years that we acquire today, and it's in a market that feels a little bit more tight. Risk premiums are thin and you know, there's other things in the market that we could see. I mean, you can always look at the classic inversion of the yield curve as a sign of a looming recession, right? And a market top, which we don't need, you know, we can get into the nitty gritty about that another time or something. But uh, when, so basically you need to be positioned accordingly. So like you said, right, when you 1031 exchange, you need to exchange into a property and a debt structure that is best positioned to withstand being bought at the top of the cycle. So what what would you rather own? And this is rhetorical, semi-rhetorical. What would you rather own at the top of the cycle? For real estate that's super solid, or would you rather own speculative real estate that is relying on a valued plan and for rents to further go up? In right? a second grade and tertiary market. In a in a second grade market. Exactly. So and then so that's one piece of the puzzle, right? It's the actual property and the strategy. Then the other piece, like you said, is debt. Because if you're going to have to ride a down cycle, you need good debt to be able to ride it out. So what you need is you need lower leverage, better DSCR, and that's really it. Does And, and term. Term is really good too. Uh, but I would say term is even less of an issue than DSCR. Because at the end of the day, if you, and we're, we're seeing this every day because right now we're in the throes of this shaking out of the cycle. And so what, what we're seeing people is people becoming maturity defaulted. And that means their loan is in default because their loan is now due and they can't pay it off. And what's happening? Most of the time the lender goes, yeah, I'll give you an extension, right? Because a lender is not going to want to foreclose on a property that is performing, right? If the property is not performing, that's when the lender is going to be more so forced to take the property back. And that is obviously as a borrower, the thing you want to avoid most. So it's more important that you can continue to make payments more so that you, then you have uh, more term on your debt to avoid being maturity default, because I think you can negotiate your way out of that more so. So if I'm looking at debt, I'm definitely looking at the risk factor. Number one being what is uh, the DSCR and your ability to refinance out of that, which last week we covered the refi exit test, which I think is a really, really great way to analyze the risk of a deal. And that is number one, most important when you have a bridge loan. Uh, but it's, it's, it's always important, especially when you're later in the cycle, which we aren't right now. Yeah. So it just makes me think that maybe uh, even a seven or 10 year term on cycle two to maybe even ride through it or maybe even give someone a loan assumption opportunity we've seen right now if we want to exit from the property it could be viable you know we're seeing a lot of people who have you know solid debt you know pretty good basis you know deals are bought in 2019 or maybe 2021 that are being sold for decent prices right now because there's assumable debts so maybe that's something that we could you know navigate if you know rates get lower and then they raise rates again that will you know obviously increase cap rates but if we could you know rise above that with you know an assumable loan or something of that nature to accommodate that that could be enticing for the next you know part of the cycle and whatnot speaking of which and transitioning to the next topic um 
there's something I am actually very passionate about and very curious to know, which is how to get paid for your CapEx. So where is value to add um, for value add deals? And the reason why I say this is we have an opportunity right now that we're looking at for a deal. And you want to learn more, you can reach out to me at my email, you know it, um, where someone put in a ton, and I mean a ton of money over what they should have on their CapEx plan. And they're not getting paid for it at all. In fact, they're losing a lot of money and they're selling the deal for basically less or around for what they bought it for, um, you know, about five years ago. So the question is, how do you get paid for value add? Because just because you throw a bunch of money at something means absolutely approximately nothing in returns to actually generating a better yield and a stronger ROI and, you know, to really enhance your, your you know, your, your cash flow created on the property, right? So question is, you know, where do you, how do you get paid right now for CapEx plans? And, you know, different times of the cycle will we'll probably yield differently too, right? With regards to where you, you put the money for that plan. So uh, the question to you is with your experience and everything going on right now, where do you get paid for CapEx and where does it make sense to have a heavier plan and all kind of items under that umbrella? So the simplest way to understand whether you're actually quote unquote, getting paid for your CapEx. And let's break that. What does that mean? Because some people might hear that and they're just not understanding the concept. So, you know, the concept is if we want to make like a single family flipping analogy again, right? It's a very simple concept. If you buy a house, right? Hopefully you buy, you know, an ugly house on a good block and you renovate the kitchen and, and the bathrooms. And before you know it, you've got the house back on the market and you're selling it for a premium, right? And your profit represents you're getting paid for your CapEx or your capital expenditures that allowed you to renovate the kitchen and the bathroom, et cetera. So, but what, what could happen is, let's say the house flipper in our example, let's say ran the numbers wrong. Let's say they thought that they could sell the house for a million bucks and so they bought it for 600 and they put, 200,000 into it. So their basis is now 800. But let's say their math was off. They did the comps wrong or whatever it was, and they can't actually sell the property for a million bucks. They can only sell it for 800. Well, they actually are breaking even and there's no profit for them. So they're not getting paid for all that work. So that concept, right, that's very easy to understand when you break it down like that, that concept applies the same exact way for multifamily. You could buy a property, put in all this work, and then in the end, have really nothing to show for it. And the the <clears throat> the issue there, the painful part about that is you could have bought a property that was stabilized, that didn't need repairs, and you got, could have gotten the same return, right? And so when we talk about alpha, what does alpha mean? Alpha means returns that are non-correlated to the market. So you're actually generating higher returns than what is normally available in the market. Well, there's two ways to actually achieve alpha. One way is to take the market level risk. So you just take regular old beta exposure, but you're able to achieve higher returns than beta. That would be alpha. The other way to generate alpha is you would take lower than market level risk and still achieve regular returns. So to make it a multifamily, uh, Example, let's say you've got all these syndicators buying and value-adding deals. They're buying deals, renovating all the units, and leasing them out at higher rent, 
and they're generating, let's say, a 15% return. Well, that's a good deal. That's beta, let's say. Well, what if you could buy a new vintage, newer vintage property, not have to take any risk or time to renovate the property at all and still get a 15% return, right? It's the same return. So you could say, oh, well, it's just the same. Who cares? But the difference was you took much lower risk. So that those are the two ways to achieve alpha, right? It's taking normal risk and getting higher returns or taking below market risk and still getting that same return. So the reality is there's still people in the market that are championing value add and they're, they're, they're looking for the next deal where they can buy and renovate the kitchens and new flooring, new paint, new bathrooms. And or they can't fathom the fact that a deal could get you know outside normal returns with doing essentially very little to no value-add plans associated, just managing and operating, you're just buying at the right point of what? The cycle, right? That's a really good point. Yeah, it's we're we're, you know, humans, we're emotional creatures, we we like pictures. And so when an investor sees a business plan and they see the before and after picture of an old, ugly kitchen, and then they see the new, nice renovated one their mind, it clicks in their mind. They instantly go, oh, that must be a good deal because that kitchen's getting transformed. That's a beautiful kitchen, right? But never mind the fact that you might be paying a compressed cap rate, which is implying that when you do the renovations, all you're doing is getting back to a market cap rate. So if the market cap rate's a six, well, you pay to five, then you do all your renovations, you raise rents, and now you're at a six. Or you could just buy the already renovated deal at a six today and take less risk and take less time. And it's just oh, easier. Five and a half. Yeah. And get your cash flow coupled with the compression and you're good to go. So it's maybe in some ways less sexy because it seems like, well, hey, this is too simple. Like how how is this working? Right. And so it's maybe not as straightforward, but that's why I started this answer with the the straight most straightforward point is yield on cost. You have to analyze yield on cost to understand are you being paid for this risk? Because if you can achieve the same yield on cost through a lower risk business plan, you should do the lower risk business plan, right? So you can't just look at the before and after pictures of the renovation scope. You have to look at the before and after picture of the cap rate to yield on cost equation. Yeah. And it's funny, the picture of the 80s vintage, 70s vintage asset with heinous cabinets and bad flooring and roofs need to be replaced to the updated you know, kitchen and whatnot may look really nice on LinkedIn to make a self-righteous post, but it may actually not help your wallet and dollar every single time. And I think anyone who you know bought those really big forced appreciation deals on older stuff is a little more risky, where cap rates were basically the same on that product as it was for a newer build, are getting slaughtered right now because naturally, you know, the older deals are going to have wider caps as the market, you know, trends in a negative direction for the next foreseeable couple of years, right? So that's the people that are going to get burned is sometimes the value add plan is not the best. And maybe you want to go cycle to cycle and kind of plan it. Maybe in a year from now, you want to, you know, buy something that's a little bit more depressed that needs a little more of a lift that has maybe, you know, occupancy issues that might require a bridge loan because agency debt doesn't size up to it with occupancy. You do that, you do the very, you know, a riskier plan, and then you exchange that into a nicer, sexier asset that's stable and safe um, after you've had all those gains and you, you know, taking your market alpha um, that you've created on the first deal, and then you're just going to ride it into market beta. But that over, you know, a five to 10 year window will be a very successful and lucrative strategy. And then rinse water or, and then, you know, 
repeat the cycle, exchange that into a, you know, a more risky deal when the market's changed and so on and so forth. So that that's, you know, not a bad strategy and implementation process. So the, where, where is it good to actually make a value add investment today would be the deal that is undermanaged and actually has issues to where you can buy at such a low price where if you put the work in, you're not actually putting the CapEx dollars in to raise rents. You're just putting CapEx dollars in to just save the property from going totally downhill. And that you can actually do very well with. Again, it's all about your basis. You have to buy in low enough to justify the risk. But that's kind of where the real meat of a value add opportunity is today. Because what we were seeing a couple years ago was perfectly good deals. Deals were that were in good condition, fully occupied, well-performing, and people were buying them and then doing full renovations on top of that, right? They were value-adding the value-added deal and just going to the next iteration of it and trying to push rents further. And it was working because the economy was growing and tenants could afford it. Today, tenants can't afford another rent increase the same way they could a few years ago, right? There's a constraint on affordability. And so when there's a constraint on affordability, you can't pursue, I mean, I can't say you can't, but it doesn't make as much sense to pursue business plans where you can raise rents further, right? So instead, and if you, I mean, look at the deals that we're buying right now, the business plans are almost kind of funny. It's like, wait, you're planning to raise rents by how much? Nothing? Oh, that's Organic rent growth, what you already says? Yeah, that doesn't make sense, right? Shouldn't you be aiming to raise rents? Well, guess what? You don't have to raise rents to still earn a great return. It's also, about, I don't want to rely on a rent raising strategy right now over the next two years. God, no. Rents could soften. Rents could drop. Occupancy will likely go down across the board, especially as new supply is starting to hit these markets. Now, supply will stop being increased uh, over the next probably two years from now or safe. So everything will likely be delivered in 2025. So 2024 and 2025. 2026, likely zero new supply coming up unanimous, unanimously throughout you know the nation, I would say, for the most part. But that said it's it's concerning and and you know relying upon you know getting a third three hundred dollar rent pop unless you know maybe it's a smaller mom and pop owner does not seem very realistic also that mom and pop owner is no longer some ignorant mom and pop owner right mom and pop owners are being advised now by national brokerage firms and so that national brokerage firm knows the value of the property so just because the rents are three hundred dollars below market doesn't mean they're going to sell the property at three hundred dollars for, per, for rent below market value, right? You're just going to actually pay a high value on the presumption that you're just going to raise those rents. And so and, it doesn't yeah. matter. So it's a double whammy because you're not really getting you know paid for their $300 there. But then you also have to go out do you know the renovation plan spend you know 10 grand per unit and then you know get $300 plus the extra bump that that renovation would give you which maybe is $100 and so get out. worse financing. Yeah, maybe talking about getting a $400 increase, not the business plan I want to be on at this point in the market cycle. So, and it kind of reminds me of our dear and good friends. And this is why I was smiling before at Wall Street Oasis, who covered a couple of deals that some sponsors will go anonymous with that, you know, one guy bought it for like 19 million and then they sold it for like 42. And then the next group, you know, bought 65. It and think they could sell it for 65 and the next group is going to buy it. I think they're going to sell it for like 80. It's like, well, this deal not too long ago sold for X price and you're going to bring it here. 
Heck no. It doesn't make sense. It, 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 there's just no way what goes up must come down in that deal. I think, and I don't have the exact specifics in front of me. I think you recall what I'm talking about though, where it's like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Like just from and the nature of the deal. And, you know, you can't put lipstick on lipstick on lipstick on lipstick. Right. And so cap rate compression or expansion can really stretch valuations, but you can only go so far away from fundamentals. And the fundamental constraint is affordability. And if we're talking about raising rents over and over again, the limit is a tenant's wallet. How much can a tenant pay for rent, right? And so that is what is really coming into play. So when thinking about a valued plan, you have to think about what is the affordability constraint here? And basically what, what that means is, what is my pro forma rent relative to the median household income? And you know, generally speaking, apartment, uh, multifamily properties require that tenants make three times the rent. So if you have $1,000 a month in rent, that's $12,000 a year, they need to make $36,000 per year, right? That's that's not a very difficult constraint, right? Three times for rent is not that tough. But so anyway, one, one point that comes to mind is finding ways to add value without actually stretching affordability. And one way that we've been rolling out across our portfolio and for new acquisitions as well is bulk internet. So bulk internet has really grown in popularity and in viability. And the way that we're, the, the, the rationale behind it is basically the property buys internet in bulk and then resells it to tenants individually. And because we're buying it in bulk, we're able to get it for a very low price, very low price. And so we're able to resell the internet to the tenants at whatever price we set, but we set it at somewhere around market or even below market. And so by and large, all of our tenants are paying for internet and Wi-Fi anyway. So we're not actually adding more cost to their lives. We're just changing rather than they go out and buy it from a third party provider, they're getting the internet from us. So the property also is able to generate more revenue, yeah, right? The property generates more revenue through a spread while not burdening affordability at all. Yeah, from a tenant perspective, it's great because they can move in. It's more plug and play. They're getting likely because it's bulk a bigger discount on and you know on their uh, internet service than they would be getting if they were to get it themselves. So it's truly a win win process. And that's also you know it's an inelastic good. You're going to need internet regardless of the economy. And then we can buy it, make money off it, and the tiny can save. That's just a foolproof win win win. So that's one way we're doing. You know, kind of a capex plan that's that doesn't really feel capex to me because it's not really anything that will be re reflecting in the property itself it's just more of the expense column and the t12 that will help us sell the property on the next point when we you know d dispose of it but what are other arenas and ways in which you know it's a solid place for for capex currently i mean it sounds like you just want to buy the right deal at the right basis um but is there anything else that you know would be useful in this current market or is it all deal per deal basis depending upon the age of the asset and also where it's located depending upon the tenants yeah i mean right now the the risk curve is steepening and so people now are avoiding risk. Whereas before people were like, ah, risk, no big deal, I'll buy it. So there wasn't really a price difference to your point earlier between A, B, and C class assets. But now we're seeing that price dispersion grow and become more so in line with normal conditions. And so what that means is there's actually a cap rate premium to be had from buying 
let's just say if you could magically buy a class C asset and then renovate it and turn it into a B asset, you would see the cap rate that that property is valued at go down, which increases the value of the property. So what that means is the, the very valuable place to be as far as your CapEx dollars is in renovating, not necessarily upgrading, but repairing a property and actually bringing it up an, a level from being, let's say, distressed or being in bad shape or having deferred maintenance and bringing it up to par. Because, you know, like I said, there's the risk premium. And then one of the reasons for that risk premium is the differential between permanent financing and bridge financing. Two years ago, there was no difference. In fact, bridge debt was cheaper than, age, uh, than agency debt. So if a deal, let's say, had capex work or had below market occupancy it didn't really hurt that property's ability to get financing so then therefore the price didn't reflect that risk well now it's there and so now if you buy a deal that has below market occupancy and you need to actually let's say replace roofs or you know invest into the parking lot and Boilers and chillers. Boilers and chillers, fixed siding, do the stuff that is not sexy, that doesn't Adler. directly increase rent. That is actually a better way to spend CapEx dollars than saying, okay, well, the property's in great shape. I'm just going to renovate it to try to push rents, right? So that's where, for example, I mean, we're, we'll be at Azul, one of our properties in Houston next week, where we're installing a pool. Well, are we going to magically raise rents because we're putting in a pool? No, not really, right? It's not a direct like, okay, now the kitchen's renovated, so you're going to pay $100 more. But this property, in a way, needs a pool. So we're giving the property what it needs to make sure that it's competitive in the market. But we're not burdening affordability through this renovation plan. Right. And it's also going to help with retention and overall appeal and, you know, just desire for the next buyer as well. So I, I love that premise. And you know, that is also a deal where we bought that on good fundamentals, where there wasn't much of a value add deal to be done because that was a 2020 build, right? So it was maybe just subbing out some stainless steel appliances. I remember it was something that tenants requested or, you know, wanted was some stainless steel appliances and, you know, us maybe adding a couple amenities to the property. But, you know, the, our financials were really good going in. So we felt comfortable with that deal at any point of the cycle. Yep. So yeah, so those are kind of the ways that we're approaching value add and breaking out of that mold that everyone got so accustomed to, which is, okay, you buy the deal, you renovate the interiors, you raise rents, and there's your good deal, right? There's other ways that a business plan can come together that will make a deal a good deal. Yeah. And it just, I think the, the biggest message I want to convey to people is be open-minded, be open-minded about where the returns are coming from. But while you're being open-minded, be also be skeptical at the same time about where the returns are coming from too. If the returns are coming from, hey, rents are already here and we need to get them 300 bucks more because we're going to do X, Y, and Z, we'll be very cautious and conscientious and really actually challenge that sponsor, challenge um, the person who's pitching you on that deal, the capital partner and capital raiser as to, you know, where comps to support your argument? Where, where, where does that stand? You know, where are the comparables? What is Yardi and CoStar uh, Co saying, uh, you know, the submarkets projections are going to be check also the supply coming to the market and, and where that is, right? So these are factors that are really important, especially, you know, if there's a supply issue, what's going to happen? Well, rents are going to be softening and your rents are going to have to be, you know, handicapped to where the new the new sexy asset's going to be. So be very conscientious about where the returns are coming from and, and keep an open mind there.
All right, on to the next topic here. Um, this is a question. Shout out Ryan and Alex on this one, who hopefully will be working with you guys in a deal coming up. We'll hopefully have space for you on something soon. Um, but they had a question. We'd love to hear your and Rob's thoughts on recession resilience, uh, resistance of multifamily assets, especially given how long the yield curve has been inverted. So basically, you know, why is multifamily recession resistant? Okay, cool. So one interesting point that they made was consider the yield curve inversion. And so this is something that we touched on earlier and I just kind of hinted at it. But uh, for those that are not familiar with this concept, uh, the yield curve is basically short-term bonds all the way up to long-term bonds. And in a healthy market, you would see a term premium. So the longer the term of the, the bonds, the higher the rate. And that's just the general concept in finance that if you're going to lend out money, the longer you're willing to lend it out for, you should you should demand a higher interest rate for that, right? That's just pretty simple economics. If I'm going to make a, a, a one-year loan, I might charge an interest rate of X, but if I'm going to make a 10-year loan, I'm taking a lot of risk by waiting a long time for my payback, so I'm going to want to charge more than X for that loan. So that's the concept of a positive sloping yield curve. And so what happens late cycle is the yield curve actually inverts, which makes no sense. But what it means is short-term rates like SOFR or the two-year U.S. Treasury bond and versus the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, that, that relationship is inverted. So two-year bonds are, let's say, 5%, and then 10-year bonds are 4%. So you're actually getting paid less interest to lend long-term. And why would that ever be the case? Well, that would be the case when basically lenders are so nervous about the short-term fundamentals that they actually require a return premium for short-term lending, but they're more confident about the long-term outcome. So they're willing to lend long with less return. It's a weird dynamic and it usually doesn't last long, but funny enough, we've been in a, an inverted yield curve environment for a long, long time. I mean, I think eight, 18 months at least now. And the yield curve inversion predicts recessions 100% of the time. So whenever the yield curve inverts, there's a recession. And on average, it's 18 months from the first inversion to the recession. So we're due for a recession any minute now. And that's why in their question, they go, all right, can you talk about multifamily's resistance or resilience to a recession in light of the fact that we're due any minute now for one? And so I think that, so, so now that I've set the stage, we could talk about it. So with Multifamily, I don't think that it's this magical asset class that is perfectly resistant to recessions. A lot of people like to go, like you said, and post on LinkedIn and go, yeah, multifamily is the best in the world. Everybody needs a place to live. So multifamily is the best in a recession. Everyone's going to still need a place to live. Well, that's not a good enough argument because as we know, the vicissitudes of the market are much more pernicious to use some big words. The, the reality is, New supply. Word. I know. Yeah. New supply is hitting the market. That causes the supply and demand to be imbalanced. Rents can go down. Occupancy can go down. Collections can go down in a recession because as unemployment goes up, which that's pretty much the definition of a recession is unemployment going up, people have less money to pay for rent and they're going to likely go delinquent and not be able to pay rent and they're going to have to be evicted. So all these things are realities of a recession that really impact multifamily. So to go and say that 
multifamily is magic and it's bulletproof in in the face of a recession is totally wrong. However, it is definitely stronger in a recession than many other asset classes. And that's, uh, while that is very true, I just think that some people overdo this argument that, oh, multifamily is really great in a recession, right? Because you can totally lose money and underperform in multifamily. So with with all that being said, I think think macro, invest micro. And because you can, in a recession, invest into the right assets, which would mean in the right location where there's less supply, where there's less likely to be delinquency, right? What we want to do is we want to insulate ourselves against all of those negative things that happen in a recession. You're battling new supply risk. You're battling unemployment going up. So what you want to do is you want to be in a market where there isn't new supply. You want to be in a market where unemployment is going to stay strong. So where the jobs are more resilient to the recession itself, right? The multifamily is going to be more recession resistant if the jobs that underlie that multifamily market are more recession resistant, right? It all connects. So it's not all multifamily is created equal, right? We all know that. And so that's why, I mean, we don't need to... Uh, you know, constantly go over our investment strategy, but that's why we're in Texas. That's why we invest in suburban multifamily into this renter by necessity demographic where there's stickier tenant bases and there's a deep demand and uh, a broad renter pool where we can cater to a wide demographic of people that really want and need our product. And it's not like a, a luxury good where they can just walk away from it. However, with that being said, when you talk about renters by necessity, you're talking about workforce housing. So you're talking about people that make less money. And, you know, we all know the statistics. They're dire out there. I forget what it is, but it's something like half of all U.S. households don't have $400 for an emergency, right? They wouldn't be able to afford a $400 emergency, right? That's workforce housing. So if anything slips, that rent is going to go delinquent. Whereas in a Class A property... If people are making 100, 150, 200, 250,000, those are renters. Those are discretionary renters, right? They could potentially afford to own a home, but they're That's renters. The next home buyer is that person, typically speaking. Yeah. They're renters by lifestyle. And they're living in New York. Yes. If they, yeah. if they have a hiccup in their life, a, a crisis, an emergency, or a change in jobs, that's not going to all of a sudden mean that they're going to just go delinquent and stop paying rent, right? They care about their credit. And they're going to likely have savings to be able to cover rent in the short term before they find a new job or whatever the case may be. So that is the difference between renters by necessity and renters by choice. So both, I would say, right, both are multifamily. So both are more so on the recession resistant side of things, more so than private equity, venture capital, stocks. But within multifamily itself, right, we're looking at... <clears throat> the best strategies, asset classes, and geographies to, to position ourselves in the current environment. But yeah. I mean, I think the, the the funny thing about the question is, it's like, hey, in light of the yield curve, how, how well, what is multifamily's recession resistance? But I don't even care about the yield curve. I'm just looking at what we're seeing today on the ground. It already feels like recessionary, right? We already kind of are like feeling it. For, it's felt like it for a while. I can only speak to myself, but I feel as if my dollar you know, is not going as far as it was before. And I feel more pinched. I'm looking at, you know, getting similar things and services 
but my money is evaporating a lot quicker now than it was before. So that definitely feels a certain type of way. And I don't think I'm alone in that. And you and I are probably a little more, um, you know, recession resistant with what we do uh, and the incomes that we make, we do well, but still I'm feeling a little bit more pinched and I'm not alone in that regard where I feel as if just, Hey, inflation is just really affecting, you know, many people and that will, you know, hurt. But I will say the interesting thing currently right now is that with regards to job losses, you know, blue collar jobs and service jobs like that are really strong. So it's really more people that are like the analysts of real estate companies or, you know, work, you know, as a financial advisor, mortgage brokers, real estate agents, stuff like that. They're kind of getting hit harder right now than, you know, the plumbers or, you know, the service person or, you know, the garbage men, this, that, right? So uh, it seems as if the more blue collar jobs are a little more resistant and haven't been as hit as hard yet, as much as, you know, the more white collar, you know, suit and tie folk. That's a really, really good point. That's probably the best point uh, of the whole show because unemployment is not dispersed equally across the labor market. And to your point, exactly, you totally nailed it. I think that in this coming recession, and we've already seen it, right? We've already seen the job losses occur in, uh, well, first it was tech. Tech had a big recession and there was a lot of layoffs in tech. It was in 2021, 2022. Like the, yeah. those, now it's kind of funny because I think Saks officially ended the tech, you know, recession is over. So those jobs will probably start hiring again. Meta's doing really well. I'm sure all those jobs that were cut before just to kind of churn more revenue are going to be pumped back up again. So I think tech will actually have a nice bounce back now this year, which is good. So, you know, to your point, the recession, I feel is really is kind of in 2020, you know, back into 2022 and 2023. If you look at sales, loans being originated and whatnot, not a lot going on, kind of the sign of, you know, slowdown and, you know, the, the, the slow churn of the market, but it seems as if that will start coming back now. Uh, so, you know, we'll see, but I, you know, a thing that I thought about, uh, was, you know, what's recession resistant? Well, workforce housing, which is people are talking about here, they need a job, they need a place to live. And yes, rents may go up or down here or there. Uh, they still have to live somewhere and they cannot produce workforce housing, um, for an economically viable price, making it, you know, recession resistant because replacement costs is so well above where your basis is, uh, for acquisitions going on. And you can't just build, you know, willy nilly left and right. So, you know, existing product value add or, you know, doing strategy strategies that we talked about, which maybe it's adding bulk Wi-Fi and, you know, you know, select parking and smaller little items to the additional income section uh, while, you know, getting good cash flow because they have a good basis. That's where it becomes recession resistant, in my opinion. Yeah. And to examine an example of a recession, which was temporary, but we had a recession temporarily with COVID. And with COVID, what was interesting was the labor, the, the unemployment was in the blue collar space because those are the people that couldn't work from home. They couldn't work remotely and all the white collar jobs, they could work remotely. And so that was a situation where it, the pain of a recession was dispersed more or more felt heavily in the blue collar uh, segment rather than the white collar segment. And maybe now in this coming period of time, right, as we see unemployment spike, which it is predicted to do so modestly, uh, you know, perhaps it's going to be more so concentrated in white collar rather than blue collar. So, I mean, recessions all look a little different. And I think that just kind of paints the picture nicely uh, about the particular, the, the current situation. And it's interesting. I think people thought AI would take out a lot of the, you know, blue collar jobs. In fact, 
you know, if you do need your HVAC redone, if you do need your crawl place fixed, a robot is not going in there. A human is. It's more of, you know, a lot of these admin jobs or analysts or kind of number crunching, uh, analyzing jobs that are actually being replaced by AI. Um, so that's kind of subbing in right now. So we'd be very curious to know what unemployment may or may not look like for the white collar space as AI is more widely spread and there's more tools and add-ons to either, you know, hack productivity where maybe two people or three people could do what five were doing before. Naturally, there's a nice arbitrage and spread there. So that will probably have an effect to some extent. That's not to say the jobs won't be recreated and there will be more growth and more of a individual versus corporatization of those jobs, you know, where, you know, someone might have their own little smaller shop and do it as, as a service as opposed to, you know, a bigger company coming in. Maybe that will happen. I don't know. But it will be curious to see how AI does, you know, kind of hurt the the white collar space coming up. You know, I have no predictions there. It's just kind of a thought. Yeah, it's a good point. Another good point. Yeah. So we're almost going to wrap up here because we have a webinar we need to do in about 24 minutes. We'll get to the resi uh, kind of uh, structuring in the future. One thing I just want to speak on real quick, I listened to this book once more, was Rich Dad, Poor Dad once more. And I just love that book. So we've talked about this a lot, but what I should do with my own personal finances and just want to make this a PSA to everyone. If you haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad before, you really need to. If you haven't read it in a while, reread it. I think some of the principles really ring more true. And I was just analyzing my life. Uh, and I was like, wow, you know, me buying another house and renting my house only come with another set of burdens, more responsibility, more work that it's gonna be done on my end, then I have to refurnish my property, because I'll probably turn it into a month to month rental or Airbnb. So it just makes me think, hey, that's actually not the right wise decision. I'm hearing rich dad in my head right now saying no, that's probably not the best idea. But what is and ironically, this market is more dislocated is exactly what we're doing here on this show and exactly what we do, which is multifamily investments and get, you know, items on the asset column, which is, of course, investing in these deals. So I just had, you know, another paradigm switch once more uh, away from the single family space and more into the passive space, which is, of course, investing in our opportunities, uh, eating more of our cooking, uh, as you like to say. Um, so I just felt very inspired. And, you know, my brain was really turning and just thinking about, wow, you know, if I can just, you know, really go all in for these next probably three, four years uh, as the market is shifting into the multifamily space, which you very well say is more dislocated and is for sure with regards to where that market is opposed to the housing will be set up very well. So that was just kind of my uh, thought there and, you know, reshifting and uh, more alignment into what we're doing here. But uh, I just want to do a PSA to Robert Kiyosaki. Shout out to him. And that book is just so incredible. Yeah, no, you're you're making me want to go back because the funny thing about that book is it's digestible by a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old could read that and understand the concepts fully, but I also think that it would be very interesting for me to go back and read it for me now because I don't think I've read it in at least 10 years. So wow. it would be interesting to revisit the concepts and see, you know, if I look at it from any new perspectives. I really do. So I think you likely will too. It is to your point exactly the most digestible book. And I've kind of had this thought here, which is just like a relationship that we want to go very deep in. I want to go deep with about 12 books. Okay. I don't need to read a billion books, but maybe every single year. And I think this is the thought that I'm going to move forward with and going to do. So I'm actually going to state it right here, right now, a book a month, but the same book every single month 
forever. So I can do maybe other books on top of this, but every single year around New Year's, around the Christmas time, I'm going to re-listen to Rich Dad, Poor Dad once more. And then I got to find a book in February. I'm thinking Seller Be Sold would actually be a good one by Grant Cardone. I don't advocate everything about Grant Cardone, but as a salesperson and having listened to that book, it really is a great one. So I think I'm going to do Seller Be Sold for February. So maybe we'll have to do a little Craig Book Club special. Uh, I like but- that. Yeah, maybe like we'll have that. to do that and we'll collectively do a book together. Uh, that could be a fun little thing. And maybe for the podcast listeners, we can do that too. So we'll think about that. But just really want to once more shout out Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, and the incredible um, digestible and you know evergreen content that that book is and just the, the gift that keeps on giving, which is that book. So I just want to really shout out that. And as I said, if you haven't listened to it, please do because it is so enlightening. Yeah, we should definitely next episode come back with some of the most important books, recommendations, right? Like you said, there's hundreds of good books out there, but what are the books that make sense to just keep going back to? And then, yeah, it would be fun to actually just let people know, hey, this week we're reading and listening to this book and then we can, you know, yeah, if anyone has recommendations, shoot us a note and then we can kind of just get going from there because, yeah, I I used to do a ton more reading uh, than I do now. Uh, you know, different times, you know, learning versus executing and things like that, growing and everything. But uh, yeah, no, it's always good to be to be learning and reading and stuff. And uh, as far as goals, I know you put that, you know, you're giving that PSA as far as goals. Last night, I came home as right as I came home, I put my phone down in the kitchen and I retired to my bedroom. I did not bring my phone into my bed. Instead, I picked up the Kindle and I read for a while, got some good sleep. This morning, I got up, I stood in front of my red light panel and I meditated while I took in the the red lights. Uh, so killing he's many holistic, birds. folks. Yeah, he's looking for his wife and he's holistic. You love to see it. That's how you very, know twenty twenty four going to the moon. Very healthy, very healthy. So tonight will hopefully be another night with no phone in bed, no blue light, and uh, and a good night's sleep. Yeah. So. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, if you want to get on the book club train, I'm going to call it right now. This is a new initiative for the podcast and just generally moving forward so we can all kind of cohesively and collectively do something together. Please read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in January if you haven't done so. Hopefully Rob will do so as well. And then I think next week we'll have to have... uh, Next week we'll have to have a book of the month for February that we'll discuss in March. But I'm actually thinking here while I'm on it, Seller Beast Hold is definitely something that I would like to, you know, kind of go into because there's really good philosophies there. And maybe I'll make some notes as we go through it. Maybe you'll make some notes as well. And we can collectively do a book together uh, and we can share it with our friends, of course, to, you know, create larger discussion and, you know, enrich each other. Uh, but I also want to make sure that we can do your two books for one month because it's about one month worth of reading or so. So you can find those books, both those books in Audible. So, uh, of course, Rob's two books, you can Google them. Uh, you actually see the cover in the background if you want to pull them up real quick in your office. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do that actually for January is both of your books to maybe drive some more sales to those books, of course. Uh, but just to go through them as obviously we're deep in there and those two places for investing I don't think there's a more dislocated market, as you would say, than the multifamily market. So I think really learning the principles that you have so well outlined in your book could be useful. So maybe January uh, or December is, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad month. January is Rob's two books. And maybe February is, you know, Seller Be Sold or something of that nature. I don't know. We'll figure it out. But uh, yeah, it gets me excited and gets my juices flowing. Very good. 
Cool. Well, with that said, thank you so much. We'll be in Texas, Texas next week. We have the Aspire webinar in approximately 18 minutes. So we're very excited about that. If you have any questions about that deal, it is a 506C. Uh, be more than happy to answer any questions if you're an LP or a capital raising partner to see if we have any room left in that deal. Ryan and Alex, thank you so much for the question. Keep it coming. Uh, and if anyone has any mailbag questions, obviously email me. My email is craig at lscre.com. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Peace.